mentioned, we're going to be back in Romans today. Pretty pumped about that one. So Romans chapter 4, and we're really going to be going from verse 1 all the way to 25. And so if you're newer around here, we launched this new series back in uh, August, and we wanted to do this because the, the Romans essentially is, it's an in-depth de- in dive into the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a season, uh, especially back in August, September, that was very, very shaky, a lot of unstable times around us. And we wanted to be deeply rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so uh, we took a little break after Thanksgiving for Advent and to launch the new year and everything, and we're jumping back into that again today. So Romans chapter 4, uh, really going to go to the entirety of the chapter here, and I'm going to be talking a little bit about the anatomy of faith today, and specifically the anatomy of a saving faith and how it moves from a saving faith into a life that brings blessing uh, into the world today. And so I was telling a friend a little bit earlier, I, I think this entire chapter is going to feel a little bit like high school biology class, a little bit, talking about anatomy. I don't know if you guys were big fans of biology. Uh, I was a communications guy myself, so pretty much everything was over my head. I went to a and and it worked out well. But, um, and so, you know, that's kind of the, how it plays out there. But biology class, I remember going this one day. This is the one time I really enjoyed class. It's the, it's the day you walk in, you got the giant frogs on the table, and you get to dissect this thing. You remember this? And I'm looking at these things kind of going, okay, I've never seen a frog this large in my life. Um, and you can smell the smell when you walk into this room. But that's the joy of this day. Like, you, you, you get excited, you're able to cut it open, you're able to bring everything out and see what puts that thing together, how the whole thing works. And this is what Paul's going to be doing uh, when it comes to saving faith in chapter 4. He's going to be essentially taking uh, all, of, all there is about faith, and he's going to be putting it out on the table and showing us what saving faith really is. And then beyond that, like, how it all works together to come about and bring about a faith or bring about a life that's going to bring blessing into the world in which we live today. Uh, kind of like last week when we talked about our Mission Sunday, we got to hear about the faith stories of a number of our missionaries and how Ill, illiterate farmers in, uh, halfway around the world are, are rising up, coming to faith. They're planting churches and just absolutely incredible things. And so right from the very beginning, I just want to let you know, chapter 4 of Romans is going to be the chapter that I wish I knew and understood back when I was a kid, when I was struggling with the deeper matters of the faith. Maybe you experienced this or something like that, but I remember, like, I mean, growing up, I had, a, I had the hardest time really believing that I was saved. I was always asking the question, okay, Father, did my faith really take when I prayed the prayer when I was six years old? Was that a legitimate faith? Did I repent enough? Right? Have I been faithful enough? Um, the fruit that I'm looking at here, is that legitimate evidence of fruit or is it something different? And I was always battling with that thing. I think I shared with you uh, that a number, t- a number of times, but I was definitely the kid that grew up in like pretty much every camp and every altar call at church or whatever it may be. I was always there, you know, getting re-baptized, getting re-affirmed. You know, and it's just one of these things that you, you don't want to be uncertain about. And so I was always crippled with fear, always crippled with insecurity. And and this is what Paul's going to deal with here in this chapter. He's going to bring it to the surface and show us what brings about a legitimate saving faith. And then really how it goes from there to this faith that brings blessing into the world. Bottom line, my hope is that we're going to be able to see that what begins here in the very beginning with genuine saving faith, it's going to keep building and it's going to keep growing and become that, 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 that life that brings blessing and favor into the world today. And so... Again, Romans 4 is where we're going to be. Um, Again, if you're joining us in Romans, you're not really sure what this letter is about. It is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome in the first century, somewhere around 50 AD. And, um, and so it, it, it's all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is Paul bringing it to the surface, and he's saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And this entire letter right here is all about the inner workings of the gospel and how it produces a life of faith. 
And so the first couple chapters are essentially the big picture problem of the world, right? He says this, he brings this in, and he talks about, hey, there's a lot of brokenness in the world. Here's what takes place. We suppress the truth about God. This is, in short, what's taking place in the world. And we elevate ourselves. We choose to worship a thousand other little G gods. And as a result, there's a lot of brokenness that takes place in the world. And so chapter one wraps up. There's a lot of they language. There's a lot of pointing out they and saying kind of like, they do this, and they do this, and they do this, and they do this. And it's a lot of that brokenness language, right? Right there. But in chapter two, he turns around and it's essentially the mirror that he holds up in front of religious people. And he says, hey, religious people, don't get, don't get so cocky, right? Remember this? Don't, don't forget that, hey, the brokenness is out there in the world. It's here inside of you too. Don't live a hypocritical faith. Don't be so judgmental of other people that you forget, hey, like, this is my battle too. And, and so it's kind of like, this is the brokenness of the world in the first couple chapters. And then chapter three begins to turn a corner right here where he, he, he essentially brings us this incredible news that even though he says, there's none of us who are righteous, not even one person, the entire world, I don't care if you're inside or outside the church, like there's none of us who are righteous, not even one person. The, the, the good news is that the righteousness of God is available through faith in Jesus Christ to everyone who believes. And so he wraps up chapter three and it's like, he said, this is why there's no boasting for the Christian. It's why there's no, there should not be, there is, but this is why there should not be arrogance and boasting and self-righteousness. And like, there is nothing for you to stand on as you stand before a holy and righteous God, except for the the, the saving, uh, except for exactly what God has done for us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He has gifted you his righteousness. And so there is no boasting. And so in chapter 4, he kind of comes here, and he's going to take this entire chapter to essentially prove his point. His audience is going to be listening to this, and they're going to be sitting there kind of going, okay, like, that sounds awesome. I've never seen this take place anywhere else in the world. Like, are you serious? Do you really mean that, Paul, that, that we could be righteous before holy God simply on the basis of faith? And so chapter 4, Paul is essentially saying yes, and here's how you can know that's true. And he does it through the life of Abraham, which is strategic, of course, because Father Abraham is the father of our faith. We sang the song when we were kids, Father Abraham had many sons, and we all, rec- we all, uh, we all acknowledge his faith, and we recognize that he's the father of our faith. And so he goes there with the Jewish community here, and he's proving his point. And here's what he says, beginning in verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by, by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? If Abraham was justified by works... He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so he lays it all out here at the very beginning. Once again, he's going to be repeating this over and over and over again to make sure that you, the religious people, and people on the outside are also going to understand righteousness really does come through faith. Right Before Abraham ever had a chance to work, before he was ever circumcised, before the, the law came around or anything like that, like his righteousness was counted to him by God, or his faith was counted to him by God as righteousness. And so that's where he begins. He continues in verse 4, and really, this is where he begins to break it down, and he kind of does so in this contrast between people who work as a means of salvation and people who do not work. And so he sets it up like this, and he says, To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted to him as righteousness. And so he sets it up kind of in this thing where it seems like to most of us that the person who works, that's the one who should get the reward. Right? This is the thing that's valued in our culture today. Like if you don't work, you're being lazy, you get what you're due. To the one who works, you probably get a reward or something like that. And what Paul's saying right here is, in the kingdom of God, it's the exact opposite as it pertains to salvation. Like the, the, one who, uh, the one who doesn't work, that person is then gifted righteousness from God. 
And then the one who does not work for his salvation, um, he's saying that that person is never going to be satisfied because they're always going to feel entitled. Uh, they're always going to feel entitled towards God. They're going to come into worship, and they're not going to be really worshiping. They're going to be going through some things. They're not going to feel grateful. Uh, they're they're going to always feel entitled to whatever things may come about because this is how a works-based system always works. Right, right. You do the work. Your boss pays you for the things that you just did. This is the agreement we come into when we, do, when we do a job or something like that. So you're not looking at your boss or your CEO with gratitude or with worship or affection or anything. You're not shocked by your paycheck. You don't get it in the mail and be like, oh, my gosh, look what I just got, babe. This is incredible. I just got a paycheck. He gave me money. Why did he? He's so generous. He's so generous. He's, no, 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 no. You expect it because you did a job and he paid you for the thing that you do. And so... It's a great system economically. This is what he's saying right here. He's saying, he's saying, no, no, no. Like, like you're not, ex- you're not excited about that because again, he did, he, he paid you for what you do. And again, it's a great system economically, right? We do this in the workplace. It's a great system economically. It's a terrible, sal- terrible system for salvation, spiritually speaking. Paul's going to say a little bit later on. He's going to say, hey, the wages that we're actually due, they're death, separation from God. This is what's due because of our unrighteousness, because of our sin before God. And so it's a great system economically to get what, you're, what, you're, what you actually have done, but spiritually speaking, it doesn't actually work out because really, number one, there's no amount of good works you're ever going to be able to do that's going to erase the bad works that you've done before holy God or the unrighteous deeds that you've done before a righteous and holy God. There's no amount of good works you can do to overcome that. I mean, if I were to be, if, if I were to cheat or, um, or abuse a friend or a spouse or something like that, I would never be able to come before him and be like, hey, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah okay, yeah, I, I know I did all that, but I think you're forgetting about the fact that, you know what, I recycled during the week. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to come back and be like, you know that blue can? All my stuff goes in there, saving the world right there. Like, they'd be sitting there, one has nothing to do with the other, right? You don't stand before a judge on trial for murder and be like, look at my Prius, bro, saving the planet. Like, you can be excited, like, like that's what I'm doing. They're going, no, 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 you're here because of murder. Like, one has nothing to do with the other. And so Paul comes in, and he's going to go on, hey, from the very beginning, you need to understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ is fundamentally different than everything you've seen or experienced in the world. It's different than every religion that kind of says, hey, here's what you do when you earn favor from God. It's different from every other thing that you've ever experienced because our God is a God who, in verse 5, he justifies the ungodly. He, he counts people as righteous who, who aren't actually righteous he rewards those who doesn't work and is all completely on the basis of faith. And so he's not saying right here that there's not a place for doing good works, right? We talk about it all the time around here. We know that works are a part of our faith. They're not a part of our saving faith. But Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 2. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of doing good works. In other words, like when you were knit together in your mother's womb, God knew you. Right? And he, he created you on purpose with intentionality in order to do good works that God would be glorified in the end. And so there is a place for good works. What he's saying right here is he is speaking to the one who's willing to lay down those good works as a means of salvation. And he says to that person who instead, he says, believes in him who justifies the ungodly, to that person who's transferred their trust to Jesus Christ, their faith is counted to them as righteousness. And so it's what Tim Keller calls a transfer of trust that takes place, right? Whereby I, I, I move from standing totally and completely on my own two legs, lifting myself up 
for righteousness, for a sense of approval before God. And I move from standing and trusting totally completely in myself to sitting and resting, as you may be sitting and resting in these chairs, totally and completely in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as a substitute for you. And so in other words, in the saving faith that we are seeing right here, there's a transfer of trust. There's a brand new object of faith whereby I move from maybe it's some sort of a generic understanding of God. Yeah, I believe in God. If you've ever gone and, and, and shared your faith with anybody and maybe you've asked a question or you've heard this question posed before, why should God approve of you? Why should he allow you to come into heaven? One of the answers people are going to say, well, I believe in God. And he's saying, no, 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 it's not just a generic belief in God or you know what, I tried really hard to be a Christian. No, 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 that's a works-based salvation. It's not any of these other kinds of things. There's a brand new object of your faith whereby I move from standing on my own two legs or whatever it may be to sitting down and completely resting in the life, death, and resurrection. And what he says right here, if you have made that transfer of trust, it is counted to you as righteousness. I remember um, a number of years ago, uh, back in the seminary days, I had to sell Kat's car. We were getting rid of it. And uh, it was not the car sales days, but it was, it was time to get rid of her car. Found a buyer online, met him in this parking lot, and we worked out this deal. And uh, we came to an agreement on the price. It was kind of a lot of fun because I enjoyed the negotiations, the sales, and all that kind of fun stuff. But we agreed upon a price. Come to find out the dude is the chef at Old Hickory Steakhouse in the Gaylord Texan. I don't know if you guys have ever been there before, but it's a really, really, really fancy steakhouse. Exceptional food. Um, love the reputation. Never been there before at that point in time, right? We were, we were seminary students, and so that was kind of a meal and a night, date night that we didn't get to experience a whole lot. And so I found that out in the, in the negotiating thing, and I'm like, all right, look, I'll agree, we'll agree to this price, but I was like, you got to throw in a, a you got to hook me up when I come to the steakhouse. I want a meal for four. I want like, yeah, yeah, we got to hook that. He's, he goes, bro. He's like, you, he's like, done. You come and see me at Old Hickory Steakhouse, and you will be hooked up. And so Kat was about like eight months pregnant at that time. We had a meal for four. Uh, I threw in my brother. If you've ever met my brother, he's kind of like two people. And so, um, and so we come together. We got three of us that are really four. And we show up at Old Hickory, and we come to the, we come to the front, and, and they're like, name, please. And I was like, oh, my name's Aaron, but you know what? I'm with Bob tonight. And they're like, oh, you're with Bob tonight. We've heard about you. And so they come, and they bring us to the special table in the back. And we're walking through, and we're like, okay, this is not our world. This is not seminary world. This is not grilled cheese sandwiches and peanut butter and jelly or anything like that. Like, this is fancy, fancy steakhouse kind of a place. And we go down, and we sit down, and the waitress comes by, and she's like, she's like here you go, sir. Like, everything's been taken care of. The whole night's on Bob. You can have whatever you want. And we all were like, what? Whatever you want? This is incredible. And we open up the, the menu, and we're like, every one of us gets an individual appetizer. It's not like one for the whole table, you know what I mean? Right? And we each get like bone-in, I had a bone-in filet mignon. Like that is God's gift to humanity right there, proof that he loves us. Like I never knew that that existed right there. It's like, like it was the greatest steak I ever had in my life. We all got individual desserts, and we had like bottles of wa uh, water, and like, like they had like a bowl of that there, and like everything was taken care of. I'm not kidding, like the most exceptional meal I've ever had. And the end of the night comes, the waitress comes by, and she hands me this check. And it's got like everything on there. Like it was just, it was numbers that I'd never seen before. I was like, what? It's like, man, 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 come back here. It's like, I think you forgot, like, we're with Bob tonight. We're with Bob. No, no, no. Like, we are with Bob tonight. And she goes, oh, that's right. My bad. You're with Bob. Don't worry about a thing. Everything has been taken care of for you. Church, and it's exactly what God is saying to us right here. If you are in Jesus Christ, everything's been taken care of for you. 
Like your righteousness has been secure. If you've placed your faith in him, you are with Bob. He is taking care of the bill. There is a righteousness that has been credited to you on your behalf, not because of anything you've done to to deserve it, but simply because of who you're with that evening. The word that he keeps using here repeatedly throughout this text is logizomai. And it is a word, it's a Greek word that, that, that literally means that something has been credited already to your account. In other words, what he's saying right here is that when God looks at you, like he doesn't count you as a liar. He doesn't count you as a murderer. He doesn't count you as whatever your rap sheet may be. He doesn't count you as an adulterer or a cheater or a greedy person or a disappointment or whatever your label may be. When God looks at you, he calls you righteous because he has credited you with his righteousness. The Old Testament picture that he uses right here is the Jewish father who comes and he brings an unblemished lamb on behalf of his family for sacrifice. And during the sacrifice, he comes and he lays his hand on the head of this lamb. And as it's being sacrificed, the lamb is symbolically credited with that family's sin. And that lamb's innocence and righteousness is symbolically credited to that family in return. And church, it's exactly what he's saying right here. Like, if you have come to Jesus Christ in genuine, legitimate faith, right, transfer of trust that has taken place, then you can take it to the bank that there is a righteousness that has been credited on your behalf. And as you stand before a holy and righteous God, he sees not your sin, he sees not your label, and it's not that he's blind, it's simply that it's been all been covered by the blood of the Lamb. And that is the beauty of this gospel. And what I want you to see is that Paul takes an entire chapter here to just keep repeating the exact same thing over and over and over again to the religious person and to the person on the outside because what he's showing us right here has no, you do not see it anywhere else in the world. And he's saying, you have to understand, like you are righteous as you stand before a holy God, not because of what you do, not because you're exceptional at your job, not because you're really cool and people like you, not because of any of the great things that you did, not because you, you were faithful with the rest of your life, not because of any of those things that you've done, simply because you've come to the cross of Jesus Christ. There's been a transfer of trust, and in that transfer of trust, God has gifted you his righteousness. And so it's good for us to sit here and to take an entire chapter, if you will, an entire service, to let this soak in, because I believe that this is one of these things that you know but one of those things that's really, really hard to, to know. Like it's one of those things you, you acknowledge and you say, yeah, yeah, I, I, I've heard that before. But, but it's another thing to believe and to be able to soak in it and to be able to understand the, the beauty of what's taking place when he's declared you righteous before holy God. John's going to go there in his, in his epistle and he's going to say this. He's going to say, these things that I've written to you again, who believe in the name of the Son of God, you who are saved, you who have put your faith in the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. In other words, God wants you to know that you can know. God wants you to know that you can know. God wants you to be standing on solid ground. Like he's written these things for you. He's given you an entire chapter here in verse 4 that you can know because you know because you know that if you come to him in faith that he sees you as righteous, that you're approved before him, and that you can take that to the bank. Church, like there, love flourishes. Love grows in the soil of security, does it not? Like he wants you to know this. Like he loves you. He wants you to flourish. Faith flourishes in the soil of security. Love flourishes in the soil of security. We know this, right? I think it's one of the reasons why he uses the strong and the permanent language that he uses to describe the relationship that we now have with him. He says things like, you're his child. 
We are children of God. As many as have received him, to them he's given the right to be called children of God. You've been adopted and brought into a brand new family. There's permanency there. There's a strong foundation for you to stand on. He talks about the church as the bride of Christ, not the girlfriend of Christ. Like not, not the friend, not the acquaintance, not the one who's shifting and moving around all the time. Like the bride of Christ, the one I've committed to for the rest of my days. Church, like love grows in the soil of security. And it is good for us to be able to sit here and, and to soak in the, the security of what this promise is giving to us right now. I mean, we're going to go drop off Caleb back in Houston to go hang out with his parents. Like I don't drop him off and be like, man, hope to see you again, buddy. We'll see. <laughs> if it goes really well, I may decide to come back and get you again. You know what? Doesn't go so hot. We'll see. We'll pray about it. We don't do that. Like love grows in the soil of security, and we know that. And so it's good for us, and I don't want us to miss this. Right here, chapter 4, it's easy to breeze past this chapter, but Paul takes an entire chapter, 25 verses here, that you would sit in it because you're not going to get this at work. You're not going to get this with your parents. You're not even probably going to get this with your spouse. You're not even going to get this with your friends. You're not going to get it in any other religion. But what he's saying here is that if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, transfer of trust from my own two feet, and I'm resting totally and completely in him, you stand before that holy God, righteous and secure and fully loved. It's a kind of love that says, you know what, no matter what, no, it's a no matter what kind of love, no matter what happened back in college, no matter what happened in the young adult days, no matter what happened in the first marriage, or the second marriage, or the third marriage, or the fourth one, or this past weekend, or online when no one was paying attention. It's a no matter what kind of love. And so it's good for us to sit in this and understand that God's disposition towards you is different than how it feels in that moment of failure and wandering and a lack of faith. He's not coming with the rocks. He's not coming with the condemnation. He's coming, his wrath being satisfied because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on your behalf. It's a propitiation. We talked about it in other times right here. His wrath has been satisfied because of what Jesus has done for you. There's a smile on God's face as he looks at you, not because of what you've done, but simply because you're covered in the blood of the lamb. And we have to be a church that understands it. It's why you worship. It's why you go. It's why you sing, not just songs, but, but you're pouring out something that's inside. Because what he's done, you, you, you do not see duplicated anywhere else in the world. And I love where he goes next because he's sitting there going, okay, I know this is hard for you to believe. Like, I know, I know that this, I know there's nothing about this makes sense. And so I want you to see what David has to say. And this is intentional. He goes to David right here because David's that guy, that great king of Israel, the man after God's own heart. He's also a guy who knows how hard and fast you can fall. And so he goes, I want you, like David gets this. And he says this, he says, David says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered, verse seven. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count, logizomai, there's that word again, his sin. In other words, like David gets this. Even David is able to see how incredible this is. The man after God's own heart, the man who knows how fast and how hard you can fall because of sin. And so he keeps going in this text with really two more questions that help clarify a little bit of saving faith. I don't think these are questions that we really wrestle with a whole lot. Nevertheless, this is his argument. The first is really about circumcision, which I'm going to draw a line there and just say baptism today. This is the sign of the covenant. Old Testament believers were circumcised, really obviously only men. And then in the new, in, under the new covenant, it's, the, it's baptism. This is the sign of the covenant. 
And the second question is really about the law again. And essentially the question is, okay, do you need these things? Do you need to be circumcised or baptized? Do you need to observe the fullness of the law in order to be saved? He keeps coming back again, same thing over and over again. And of course, the short answer right here is no. And the reason we know that in Abraham's story is because, well, his faith was credited to him as righteousness before he was ever circumcised and long before Moses ever came on the scene and brought us the law. His faith was declared to him as righteous. And so he goes into verse 11 and explains, hey, circumcision or baptism today, it's not an addendum that makes your faith legitimate, as some denominations still do believe today. It's not an addendum that makes your faith legitimate. It is a sign and it is a seal of what was already legitimate saving faith. And so he keeps going, and, and he does the same thing regarding the law in the following verses. And then he goes, look, you guys want to know why it all depends on faith? This is the question people are going to be asking. This is why it all depends on faith. And I love what he says. He says, this is why it depends on faith, that the promise may rest on his grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the ones who share the faith of Abraham, who's the father of us all. In other words, what he's saying right here is it's not just about the Jews, the reason it's, it's by faith, it's not just for the people who have knowledge of the law. It's not just for people with a history in the church or in religion or anything like that. Like, it's not just an American faith. It's not just a 21st century faith where we've got all this history built up and we've got a strong foundation. It's not just an American faith in the 21st century. It's not a white faith, not a black faith. It's not an Asian faith where the gospel is exploding today. He, he's saying, like, he just, he's just saying, like, it's for all. It is for all who share the faith of Abraham who happens to be the father of us all. In other words, this is the way the gospel is going to spread all around the world. As you look upon the cross of Jesus, you believe in him. There's a transfer of trust that takes place whereby I move from my own works and I trust resting totally and completely in his life, death, and resurrection as a substitute for me. Man, you are saved. And so he keeps going. And what I love, this is where it all comes together for, for, for him. But he's going to show us right here the power of saving faith and essentially how uh, the faith that is able to trust him with your soul there at the very beginning is the same faith that's going to be able to trust him in the day-to-day. That same faith that was there with Abraham in the very beginning of his story, it's the same faith that's going to grow day by day by day, and it's going to turn into this faith that's able to bring blessing into the world. And so he says in verse 18, he says, In hope Abraham believed against all hope that he should be the father of many nations. Right? In other words, he's saying when it made no sense to hope, Abraham was able to cling to hope. Now, probably helpful to understand a little bit of his story at this point in time. His story goes back to Genesis chapter 12. Here's what he's talking about, why it made no sense for him to have any hope. Back in Genesis 12, this is when shortly after the Tower of Babel, faith is, and people have been distributed and dispersed all around the world. Um, this is before Moses and the laws come in, so the very beginning of days, essentially after the flood, but in that in-between time right there. Um, God comes to Abram, and he says this, Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household, to the land that I will show you. I'll make you a great nation, and I'll bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. All peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. And so this is this is the content of his saving faith at that point in time. This is, there's three components of the original promise that God makes to Abraham. He says, land, people, and blessing. This is what I'm going to give to you. This is the promise that God makes. Land, there's going to be literal physical land. He outlines the details of that in chapter 13. It's the nation of Israel. There's going to be real legitimate people, a nation. There's going to be people that are involved in that thing. And there's going to be blessing. In other words, there's a promise that one day still future, uh, that, that, that through the line of Abraham, through the Israelites, God is going to bring his salvation to the world. Through you, you will be a blessing to the entirety of the world. And so this is the content of the promise that Abraham clings 
to today. But I want you to notice here that Abraham does not have a whole lot to go on. Abraham does not have this long history of faith. He doesn't even have the law. He doesn't even have previous prophets coming and speaking about a number of different things. He doesn't have a moral code. He doesn't have circumstances. He doesn't have any of these different kinds of things. All he has is the person of God, the promise that he made, and the power he's witnessed in creation. And it's sufficient for him to believe and to move on from there. This is exactly how it all works out. Many people ask, okay, how were people in the Old Testament saved? Was it because of the law? And of course, Paul's saying, no, it wasn't because of the law. The reason we know that is because Abraham is saved right here. He's saying, this is how, this is what he's doing. He looks at the person of God. He understands the promise of God at that moment. And he's looking at his power and he's saying, you know what? God is faithful to fulfill that promise. And he comes to him in faith, and that faith is credited to Abraham as righteousness. And it's the exact same thing for us today. We are looking at the person of Jesus Christ. We are looking at God in the flesh, the person of Christ. His promise of blessing, his promise of righteousness by faith, and then the power we've seen in the resurrection, and we could even go back to the early days of creation and all the different nuances of his power right there. And so God comes and he says this, if you trust me and you believe in my promise, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go. And it's exactly the story of Abram's faith. If you trust me, here's who I am. Here's the promise I'm making. If you believe in me, I want you to go. And it's exactly what they do. He packs up his stuff and he goes. He grabs his wife, Sarah. They grab the extended family and they get out of there. They've got no idea where they're going. They've got no idea how long this journey is going to take. They've got no idea how they're going to be provided for along the way or how any of it's going to work out. Keep in mind, like Abram's in his 70s at this point in time. They've never been able to have children, and God has just promised them, hey, you're going to be the father of many nations. <laughs> They're in their 70s at this point in time. It doesn't make sense. They don't have science at this point in time. They don't have a blue pill. They don't have, uh, they don't have like, fertility drugs or anything like that. But he still chooses to go because God made a promise, and Abraham believed that promise. He's looking at him going like, this is what you said. This is who I know who you are, and so I'm all in. I'm willing to go. In other words, like the faith that is able to trust him with his soul is the same faith that's going to carry him along the way in that journey. And again, I just want you to see, like there's so little foundation for Abraham to go on. He didn't know a whole lot about him. But I love, we see what he did know in verse 17. He says this, God is a God who gives life to the dead and he calls into existence things that don't even exist. This is what he says. God is a God who gives life to the dead, and he calls into existence things that don't even exist. I don't know a whole lot about God at this point in time, but I know he's a God who gives life to the dead, and he speaks things into existence that don't even exist yet. This is the content of his faith at that point in time. And what I want to tell you, church, is like, if that's all you know about God, and you're confident in that, it is more, more than sufficient to carry you through today. Like, he's sitting there going, like, I've got no idea how babies are going to be a part of our future here. But I know that my God is a God who gives life to the dead, and he speaks things into existence that don't even exist yet. I have no idea how it's going to play out, but I know who God is. He gives life to dead things. He speaks, and universes come into being. Church, I'm telling you, if that is all you know about God, and it is simple and basic at the very beginning, it has been through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, like if that is all you know about God, it will carry you in the day to day. Like, I, I'm telling you, like, I've got no idea the scope of his blessing. I've got no idea what my future holds. But I know that, like, my God is a God who gives life to the dead. And he brings things into existence, things that don't even exist yet. Church, like, how can you provide in the season after 2020 took place? How, like, what's going to happen in my next job? What's going to happen with my wandering kids? Like, I've got no idea, God, how you're going to do the things that I think you're probably going to do. But, like, I know who you are. You're a God who gives life to the dead and brings things into existence that don't even 
exist. In other words, God, I know that's who you are. If you want me to go, I'm in. I'm telling you, church, like there's power to be able to hold on to the faith that you had in the beginning, which was simple, and that was all in, saying, I, I, I don't know how you're going to consider someone like me righteous. I don't know how I'd ever be approved before a holy God, but I know that you're a God who gives life to the dead, and I know that you bring things into existence that don't even exist. And so you're telling me to go. You're telling me to sit back and to rest in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm in. And I'm telling you, like there's power when you can go back to the very beginning and cling to that same saving faith you had back then, which was so simple and was so basic. And you were willing to say, you know what? You want me to go? I'm willing to go. And we keep going today. Verse 19 says that he, uh, he didn't weaken in his faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. You don't know how to kill your, your faith so quickly? Like, start, start looking at the feebleness of your own body and your own strength and things you're able to accomplish instead of looking at the God who's able to bring life to the dead and speak things into existence that don't even exist. Like, you want to know how to kill your, your faith journey right there? Just start looking at what's probable and what's practical and, and, and shift your eyes from the God who's able to bring life to the dead. He's saying, no, 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 he didn't weaken in the faith when he considered his own body. He was about 100 years old, and his faith wasn't weakened because he's sitting there going, yeah, I know who that God is. So what Tony Evans calls mutual fund faith, and he says, Christians, we should not have mutual fund faith. If you're in the fin- you know, financial world, then you know, a mutual fund is when you invest your money in a number of different companies in order to lessen your investment risk. And what Tony says is like, this is what Christians do all the time. In order to lessen our investment risk, we're, we're, we're going to hedge our faith fund, if you will, in a number of different directions so that we won't be disappointed in the end. And he says, this is what we do all the time. Like, we begin really, really well. We begin with faith. Hey, I trust you with my soul. I'm not so sure later on if I can trust you with my life. And so we hedge our faith fund. And we spread it out and we're saying like, I got to trust you with my soul over here, but you're telling me that I need to trust you for satisfaction in life right now? Eee, I don't know about that one. I, I, think I, I, think I, I think I know what's going to satisfy my soul and it's there online or it's there in this illicit relationship over here or it's found in money or in greed or in domination type power or something like that. And so we hedge our faith fund and we say, okay, I'll trust you over here, but I'm not going to trust you over here. God's going to say, hey, I want you to go over here, but this direction over here is going to make you a little bit more money. It's going to help you climb the ladder a little bit more quickly. Uh, Yeah, thanks, God. I think I'm going to hedge my faith fund and make sure that I'm a little bit safer over here. It comes to identity. We do the exact same thing. God says you're holy, beloved, you're righteous, you are uh, made in the image of God, given inherent dignity and value as such an image bearer of God. And we sit there and say, hey, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for these things over here, but I still need to find my value over here in the words and affirmation of my friends, and the words and affirmation of my family, and the words and affirmation of what culture has to say about me, and whether or not I'm successful at work or at home or whatever I've defined as success. So thank you, God, for declaring that I'm okay over here, but you know what? I've got to hedge my faith fund over here, and I'm going to cling to it over here, and what he's saying is this is not how Abram works. He looks at the God who gives life to the dead, the one who's able to speak things into existence, and he says, you want me to go? I'm in. I trust you. I trust you. And that faith that's there in the very beginning is the same faith that's going to carry him through to the end. And what I want you to see also is I just want you to see that it's not a perfect faith. 
Father Abraham, the father of our faith, it's not a perfect faith. Even though it kind of says it in verse 20. He says, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, which isn't exactly true. <laughs> if you know Abraham's faith, it was not a perfect faith. Dude tried to sell off his wife a couple times because he was afraid for his life. That's not really strong faith. Um, discourage that today. Um, they get a little bit nervous. It's been about 30 years since the promise. They still haven't had kids. He goes from his 70s to around 100 years old. The babies still haven't come, and he's kind of going, okay, we've been hanging on a long time here, but there's this woman, Hagar. Um, in case you weren't talking about like a miraculous birth, maybe we should make something happen here with Hagar. And it's not a perfect faith. And what I want you to see right here is that God still honors his faith anyway. There's a grace for the weaknesses of our faith that we walk in every single day. And some of you may need to hear that today. You're on this roller coaster of faith going, hey, like I cling to him with my salvation. I'm all in there. But the day-to-day -day trusting him, the obedience, my identity, all the different things, eh, eh, okay, that's not as much. And I want you to see that there is a grace right here. And Abraham's going up and down a little bit. Nevertheless, he still says that he is approving of his faith, and it's, even though it's not a perfect faith. It says that he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. In other words, he just kept growing day by day, step by step. His faith continued to grow as he gave glory to God, as he sang, as he took a new step of faith, as he walked day by day by day. His faith kept growing. The faith that began there in the beginning, it kept getting stronger. And then it kept getting stronger. And it kept getting stronger with each decision to trust him day by day by day. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. This is him. That's why his faith, and I love this, he wraps it all up and he says this. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. It was legit. It was strong. He actually trusted. There was a transfer of trust that came to God. But the words that was counted to him in verse 23, and were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. And what he's saying right here is to the early church, to the Jewish believers, to the Gentile believers, and to the believers sitting here in Dallas, Texas today, like Abraham's faith was not just for him and for him alone. It was that you and I would be able to look back on this thing and realize that no matter how you're feeling today in the moment about your faith, even though it may feel like his back may be turned or that there's rocks in his hand, that if you cling to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, your righteousness is secure. I'll never forget a number of years ago, I was sitting in um, McKinney Square one day with a group of people here from the church, and we were out sharing our faith that day. And we were praying with people. And if you're not familiar with kind of the way we do it, we just pray with people. A lot of people love prayer. We pray with them. If they want to talk about things, we have a, a, a band here that kind of has some Bible verses walking through the, the gospel. And a lot of people are curious about what they have to say. And so we were t I was talking with this one guy. And it was one of the more um, unusual conversations that I had because he's very insecure. Um, we started talking about a number of different things. And, and he didn't. He was just very insecure about the whole thing. As we start going through some of these verses, and he starts reading them out loud, and I asked him, I was like, hey, is this the first time that you've ever heard these verses before? And he's like, no. He's like, I've, I've, I've been in the church before. I, I even sometimes go to church. I've heard some of these things before. And I was like, okay, well, how confident are you that, that, you're, that you'll be saved? Like, are you a confident person? I was like, where, where do you stand today? He's like, I, he's like I, I have no confidence whatsoever. He's like, yeah, I have no idea if I'm going to make it or not. I have no clue whatsoever. And so I asked him a third question. I was like, okay, so if God were to ask you, why should I approve of you today and let you into heaven or have a relationship with you today, what would you say? <laughs> so he laughed a little bit. He's like, bro, I've got issues. There's no way in the world that I should ever, ever, ever be saved. But a long time ago, 
Like I heard that Jesus came to die for my sin and I've just thrown my life on, uh, totally and completely into Jesus. There's no reason in the world I should ever be saved. But like Jesus said that, uh, that, that he forgives me and so I, I'm, I'm all in, I, I'm, I'm with him. And it threw me back because it was not the conversation I expected to have. Such insecurity and he's sitting there just giving the right answer and he had no idea I had the, the right answer all along. And I sat there and I looked at him and just said, bro, I was like, let me, let me understand this. Like, what do you understand about it? We walked through some of these things, and I was like, there is no reason in the world for you to be walking in so much fear and insecurity today. And the whole course of that conversation shifted. It wasn't a first-time salvation kind of a thing. It was a, hey, here's who you are today in Jesus Christ. We turned to Romans chapter 4. And we looked at some of the declarations of what is now true of him today because he has thrown himself totally and completely into the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That God looks upon him, and even in the middle of all of his insecurity, he looks at him and he says, my son or my daughter, you are declared righteous, not because you are, not because I'm blind, but simply because you've been covered by the blood of the lamb. And church, that is my hope and my prayer for you today. Maybe you came in today and maybe you're, coming, uh, you're looking back at something and Maybe you have been struggling with insecurity. Maybe you've been on the roller coaster of faith and, and that's kind of shaken where you stand today that you can look at this beautiful truth you're gonna find nowhere else in the world that because of your faith and over that because of God's grace, he gifts you his righteousness and he calls you holy and beloved. And that we would be a church that stands on that and that we would grow, that we would love, that we would go from here on out knowing that love grows in the soil of security. And that from that place of security, it would flourish in you. And that you would worship because of what God has done for you. That you would go into the world knowing the beauty of what God has done on your behalf because of the life to that and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. May we worship and rest in that today. Father God, we love you. We simply say thank you. Jesus, we pray that for the person that's coming today and that's maybe battling a lot of insecurity, that you would come and let them stand on solid ground today. And let me speak to you for a moment. Maybe that is you. Maybe you have no idea really what took place a long time ago. And maybe this is the first time that you've heard this. Maybe you're standing on shaky ground or something like that. The word of God says, if you will have a transfer of trust today, you can be declared righteous. You can stand on solid ground. Be brought into his kingdom. And if that's you today, you can stand there safe and secure. And everybody else has come in and maybe you're looking back and you're going to go in, okay, I've heard these things before, but today, God, I pray that it would be true. I pray that we would believe it all the more, that you would help someone in the middle of their fear. God, we simply say thank you. Lord, we praise you. We worship you today. God, it's in Jesus' mighty and holy name that we pray. Amen and amen.